Hi there, I'm Andy Cave. You're listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast, where we delve into people's stories, their adventures, their partnerships, the places they love, and find out what makes them tick. Here's a taste of what's in store. My family was quite an outdoor family, but I wasn't <laughs> at all. <Okay. laughs> I hated it. <laughs> Tracing danger so many times in your life make you feel very humble, I think. What did it feel like when you when you finally made it to the top of El Capitan? It's quite lonely to 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 reach the top of El Cap, and that's quite sad because you want to share your adventure and there is nobody. So, <laughs> but that's the thing with soloing. Welcome along to the very first episode of the Rab Mountain People podcast. Our guest is Julia Virat. Julia is a French climber and mountaineer based in the Alps. She sets herself big, ambitious goals and has overcome many barriers, not just in the mountains. She is clearly someone who has a very deep relationship with nature. I was also struck by her ability to share her fears and uncertainties experienced on her remarkable journey so far. We are privileged to get a glimpse into her world and ask why did she decide to try and solo El Capitan in Yosemite and phone her mum in the dark, lost, halfway up the 3,000 foot cliff. What is her role as a mentor on a project aiming to build the confidence of other women in the mountain environment? And what's it like trying to qualify and work as a female mountain guide in the macho alpine mecca of Chamonix? Julia is clearly someone who is up for a challenge. She's open and revealing. She's inspiring. It's going to be a fascinating episode. Welcome to the Mountain People podcast. Thank you. Are you in Chamonix right now? Yeah, I am. Actually, I'm in the valley of Chamonix. I'm living 15 kilometers away from Chamonix and I'm at home. Looks very cozy where you are. What, how is the snow at the moment? It's like spring snow, which is incredible because it's only the beginning of March. So it's okay. It's not, not the perfect snow, but it's okay. Abel, thanks for making time anyway. And, <laughs> and hopefully one day we'll get to meet and we can have a, you know, it would be more interesting for me to be doing this in Chamonix. Yeah. I know. After day skiing with some Van Show, but hey, oh. Um, <laughs> which part of France are you from originally? Oh, that, that's a hard first question. Because <laughs> I've been moving a lot when I was a kid. So okay. I'm from somewhere. I've been moving until I was uh, probably 16, 17. And then I've spent 15 years in the Southern Alps. Maybe, you know, Ecrin Massif, you know, near Brillant. Oh, wow. Yes. So I spent the biggest part of my life there. Uh, and then I moved uh, to Chamonix. So I've been moving a lot. I mean, were you from an outdoor family or was some, were you, because I wasn't from an outdoor family. I was the first one from my family who got into climbing and these kind of things. But for you, was it a tradition? Yeah. So the funny thing is that probably my family was um, quite an outdoor family, but I wasn't <laughs> at all. <Okay. laughs> So I was, uh, I was not doing any sport when I was a kid or a teenager. I hated it. <laughs> um, so yeah, my family used to do, you know, hiking, a little bit of climbing, skiing and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, as soon as I was a teenager, I said, oh, no, forget me. <laughs> you, were a re- you were a rebel, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you were into snowboarding. How did that come about? Um, well, when I was... 14, 15, something like that. Snowboarding was more cool than anything from any spot I've heard about before. 
so yeah i wanted to do something different and snowboarding was the the outdoor door <laughs> so i started doing that during the weekends and then uh on the wednesdays and and when i was at school and then as soon as i finished my my graduation i i went to the mountains to do snowboarding i mean that was the only plan no other plan than doing snowboarding just because i wanted something different and yeah. and yeah and was that snowboarding a lot in the southern alps yeah yeah i moved to the southern alps for the snowboarding Perfect. And, and I mean, compared to Chamonix there, everybody says that there is more um, easy to get fresh tracks, right? In that part of the Alps? Yeah, I mean, yeah, most, mostly because the, um, the ski areas are quite big and not so famous. So you don't have uh, as many people as in the Northern Alps. So it's quite, yeah, and the mentality is different. People are more quiet and, and it's um, the pace is slower than in Chamonix for sure. <laughs> so... How did you move from doing that, being a rebel, doing some snowboarding, and then of course suddenly at some point you started on the mountain guides uh, training? Yeah, that's true. So um, when I was doing snowboarding in the winters, then I was doing the the summer in the southern hemisphere to do like a full time winter, and I've done that for a few years, and then I got quite fed up with it. So my friends from that time they were uh doing you know the um, uh, mountain leader stuff you know so uh, okay. i said okay why not let's try so i've i've done the exam to to become a mountain leader and that was a good excuse to be in the mountains during the summer too so i started um to guide people hiking you know in the summer um and i loved it you know being with people in the mountains and and, and showing them everything i love so that was a nice time and so that is like being an accompanatrice, you say? Exactly, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So with big groups between 12 and 15 people, but outdoors and, and, and sharing my patients. So that was nice. And at the same time, I, I had some friends doing mountaineering, skiing, ice climbing and stuff. So I started doing it for myself. I was walking during the, the week uh, with uh, groups hiking and then I was mountaineering in the weekends. Yeah. And at some point I thought it was it would be good to to do both together. So my passion who was uh, which was uh, mountaineering and and um, the job I love to sh to share it with people. So yeah, it took me a while to go to the the exam for the mountain guy. <laughs> I, know, I hear that the mountain guides exam in France is, is, is so difficult, the first selection. I know you have this, a lot of tests. One is on the skis and one where you, is it true you have to like race across some really difficult like moraine with a big rucksack and it's timed, is that right? Yeah, you have a little bit of everything, including, yeah, running and, and, and carrying big backpacks and, and timers and everything. You have two weeks of uh, exams and every night you have a list with the people allowed to come the next day, you know, so it's a lot of pressure wow. too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when I, when I, I've done it, we were about 200 at the entrance and then you have only 40 places. So it's, it's only one people above five who will enter the school. So it's, it's really hard, honestly. <laughs> and when you managed to successfully get through out of those 40 people, I mean, how many were women? 
Um, so we were six in my um, in my class, which is uh, very unique. Because um, wow. in France total, we are about 30 women. Out of like almost 2,000 mountain guides, exactly. there's only 30 that are right. women. That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. So six women in the same year, that was amazing. Because usually there, there was like one woman every two, three, four years. Yeah. Um, we've been a lot together. So that was nice. So you're like a little gang, right? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. A little crying gang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i'm sure a lot of people listening uh you know if they haven't been to chamonix they've obviously heard of it it's this incredible place where you know the lifts where you can go from the town into the high mountains so quickly i remember when i took my parents there they're, they're not mountaineers at all on the agui de midi they were just you know it was incredible for them i mean it's it's an amazing place isn't it to, to work and but also with that, some, it can be quite a macho place, you know, with, with, with you know, the alpinists, uh, the guides. It's kind of, uh, for me, it feels very different, for example, compared to the Southern Alps that you were talking about. It has a different um, energy there. So I can imagine going through that process of becoming a guide. It's quite a macho world, isn't it? Uh, part of it is, of course. Uh, I've been sometimes suffering from it, honestly, uh, because there is no day when it's it's normal to be a woman. So either it's a positive thing or a negative thing, but it's it's never just normal. So everybody sees you, and and um, yeah, it can be an advantage, honestly. But also, you have to make proofs all the time of what you are and what you are capable of. So that, that's been quite hard. And also I'm someone who um, is kind of very sensitive and that's not, not good <laughs> in the you know, mountain envir environment. Everybody, I think, think, um, think that uh, we have to do mountaineering without emotions, which is not my way of doing it. And that has been quite hard. And um, in the mountains, for example, when I'm with, with a client, a male client, let's say, if I meet someone, he will ask some help to my client instead of me because, <laughs> because he's a man. That's how he works. And oh. Yeah, that's how it is. So once they know who you are, then you get a, you know, like a charism. Does that make sense in English, charism? Or is that French? <laughs> uh, a connection or? Uh, like a aura, you know, like, yeah, you you become someone because you're a guide. So, yeah. so as soon as they know who you are, you get a, a charisma without deserving it. You know what I mean? But if they don't know who you are, they don't respect you or even look at you. So that's weird. That's kind of weird. It's strange, isn't it? Because obviously for that job, it's, it's a lot of responsibility. So you need a lot of confidence to do it. But sometimes that confidence can move over maybe into something more arrogance or, you know, like... Uh, that's that's really true <laughs> well yeah but i think facing facing danger so many times in your life make you feel very humble i think too so it's easy to be arrogant in the valley you know to be someone in the valley but yeah. then once you're up there it's just you and and your party and and the elements so yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I've often talked to people about working as a guide. I'm also a guide working in uh, Scotland. I don't know if you've ever been to Ben Nevis. You know, it's a very small mountain, really. But 
it can be tough sometimes, you know, because of the weather. If you haven't been, you've probably heard of it. And I talk a lot about, um, you know, the, the, you need the confidence and the courage, but you also need that humility or that humble part as well. Um, because, yeah, the mountains are, um, they don't know that you're an expert, I guess. So, yeah, that's true. So, you talked there about that sensitivity, and I wondered, like, you know, if I said to you, what is the job of a mountain guide? A lot of people will think, oh yeah, it's to get people to the top of the mountain and back down safely. But it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah, so to me, so we all, we all have different uh, point of view about that. But to me, um, guiding is more, um, guiding mountains, people on the mountain is more an alibi to share something with people. So I, I'm, I'm more into the, the things we're going to share, the time we're going to spend together, the um, the symbol of the the rope, you know, um, we are tied together with. And what I like most, uh, the most is that the people are quite nude, you know, on the mountain. So there is no money, there is no um, 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 social scale, there is nothing about that. We're just equal um, facing a challenge or, um, a nice journey or whatever we're sharing it without uh, any regards to who you who we are um, that's really what i like and so i'm i'm used to share my emotions with my clients and i think that's what they like or love because they can do the same and there is no shame about being afraid or tired or whatever and so it's very simple the the link we have is very simple but very true and that's what i like Great. Yeah, very authentic. And I would imagine that that's how you keep clients for a long time. I think it, they become friends, don't they? You know? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about as well. I know you've done some work with the Club Alpen Francais and the mm -hmm. women's team. Um, how did that come about? Um, well, so uh, the, the federations in France, we have two uh, mountaineering federations and they have some uh, teams that uh, um, uh, created to, to make the people more independent. So young people more independent in the mountains. And at some point they would be able to bring other people to the mountains. And I've been involved uh, in four different uh, feminine teams. Uh, so it's been, yeah, f um, six years probably since I've been doing that. Um, oh, is, uh, it, is it, is it, is they, does it last for about two years? Yeah, it lasts for two years. And uh, the oldest team I've, I've been teaching it to, um, we're going to select the fourth, um, fourth team of them. So it's been six years already. And I've, I am coaching only feminine teams, which is a, uh, yeah, special that I, I love that. And um, I think it's it's very good for them to have women guiding, women guiding them because uh, it's like, you know, models to them. So if they see that we are capable of doing it, they dare themselves much more to do it themselves. So and just to be clear, are the the, 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 the people in this on this program, are they people who well, they're already into the mountains and they might want to think about becoming a mountain guide or how do they find them? How do they join? How do they, you know, what is their starting point? 
Um, usually, so it's, it's young women between 20 years old and 30 years old. And uh, most of them, they've been doing some mountaineering, but most uh, following someone. Some of them are following their boyfriend or uh, their father. And then they want to learn how to be the leader of the, the team. And the first goal is not to, to become a mountain guide, and it's probably too high as a level. So they just want to go with girlfriends in the mountains or with, with other friends, but without just following uh, someone. Yeah. Um, and some of them would eventually become mountain guides, but that's not the, the majority. And so I, I coach them for, uh, let's say, between 15 and 20 days a year in the different aspects of uh, mountaineering, which is great because I see them improve and, and yeah. I, get, I get really close to them. So it's finally like, you know, little sisters or something like that. And, and we get super good relationships at the end. <laughs> Brilliant. Why do you, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? why do you think they end up being... Uh following the leaders, following the fathers or following the sons? Why do you think that is? So I've been through that uh, for myself as well. I think the, the responsibility is shared because uh, probably most of the women, so it's a generality, it's not, it doesn't work for everybody, but most of the girls, um, they don't have confidence enough in themselves to, to just lead and, and, and go for it when, when they're afraid, you know? So... Uh, let's say they are at the bottom of a pitch with a with a man in the in the in the party, and they would say, "Oh, I'm afraid. I don't know if I can do it." And uh, they just want to be reassured, you know. But usually, the the boys they would say, "Okay, if you want, I can do it for you." And usually, the girl she doesn't she doesn't say, "No, let me do it." She says, mm, "Okay," because she doesn't trust herself and, and she thinks she will make something wrong and that we lose time or whatever. So I think the responsibility is shared because um, girls, they don't, they don't have enough confidence and, and boys don't let them do when they are afraid. But being afraid for a woman doesn't mean the same and for men, I think. <laughs> and that's a generality. I, I assume it's not, it's not working for everybody, but it works for most of the women. <laughs> sure. So maybe like a mixture of nature and nurture. Of, of what, sorry? Nature and nurture. So it's partly the way that society frames things, how we are brought up as, as young, yeah. young women and young men, and, and then also something maybe about how we are programmed genetically or That's as well. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so you, um, oh, when I think of France, you know, as a Brit, here in the rainy sort of uh, Sheffield, um, COVID, we can't go anywhere. I'm just dreaming of like being in France and sport climbing in some beautiful place, you know, Saint-Légier or uh, Gorge de Verdun or something like that. So, I, um, but of course there is trad climbing in France as well, but that's it's, it's where you have to put the protection into the rock yourself. It's not all bolted, but that tends to be in the mountain areas, doesn't it? And yeah. Um, I, I, I can tell, obviously, because of your adventures, that you really love trad climbing as, as well as sport climbing. How did that come about, that love for uh, that more adventurous side of climbing? Um, well, it's hard to find a, like a quick answer to it. I've, I've been to the United States climbing many, many times, and I think the crack climbing thing uh, came, from, came from there. 
um, I like when it's not only about sport and I like when it's a lot about my, men my mental. So I think uh, trad climbing is a good mix of, um, of each. So probably that's why I love it so much. And then, um, yeah, I, I like to think about all the parts of my body I will be able to jam in, the, in these cracks, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, one of, the, one of the pictures, I can't remember if it's on um, the tap the chalk or whether it's on the, on the brown willens, on the blattier, you have some photographs. The Fissure Brown, you know, Joe Brown, um, legend. Um, yeah. But you, you can see that these cracks are so wide. So if people are listening who maybe don't know, I mean, they're, they're probably, you could almost fit your body inside some of these things. And then there's another one where there's a photo of you and you're doing a maneuver, a climbing maneuver called a double chicken wing. <laughs> I mean, people listening might think that is something to do you, that you're going to buy from McDonald's or KFC, <laughs> but it's not. Is it? It's actually a climbing maneuver where you somehow. How do you describe what is a double chicken wing? Whoa! <laughs> I think uh, there are less people loving the, the climbing double chicken wings than the K KFC one. <laughs> Because it's a lot about suffering, so... Um, it looks, it's almost like where you bring one hand all yeah. the way across your body to get you, some friction on the rock with one hand, and then the other hand comes along, is it? Or is it like this? Is it where well, you... Actually, it's pressure between your elbow on the side of the crack right. and your, your hand on the other side of the crack. And wow. so you try to get your elbow lower down. Right. So it gets too big for the crack, so that, make a, that makes a, a good stack, you know? And then you do the same with the opposite arm. And then, and then you get a very... It sounds good really bad for your shoulders. It, it is. It is, totally. That's what... That's Masochistic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then the good part of it is that you're totally stuck with your arms, and then you have free legs. <laughs> you just move your legs around. Yeah. yeah, it's very easy to move legs when you're on a double chicken wings. <laughs> and I would imagine doing this double chicken winging, you're putting a lot of effort in, but you're probably moving very slowly. Is that right? Yeah, it's only one centimeter at a time. And, and that's what I call mental is because you have to just be happy with one centimeter and just do another one and then another one and eventually reach the anchor. So, yeah, you have to be brave. <laughs> yeah, you've got, to, you've got to work for it. Well, I, I can tell that you obviously love, we'll come more onto cracks and, 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 and America. I want to talk about that. But I know that you, um, you've talked a lot about working in a team and the bond of the rope with your clients and mentoring. But I also know that you like sometimes to be alone in really wild places. And I was very envious when I saw that photograph of you where you have this beautiful looking adventure in the Vercor. You, you were dragging a pulk with skis and you were by yourself for a few days. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I decided it just a few days before because I was in need of something, you know, outdoors and, and yeah, something nice in the middle of this COVID time, you know, like everybody. So I just rent a pulka because I don't, I don't own one. And I've never done that before, but it was great. So I've I've traversed the Vercors Massif in France, from it's east to west or north south. Which uh, so it's uh, it's the west of Grenoble. 
So it's the yeah. west side of the Alps. Yeah. Uh, and the massif is quite low and, and you have um, like a gentle terrain. So very, no avalanche risk, almost no avalanche risk, which is good when you're on your own. Yeah. So um, that was one of the reasons why. And when you carry a pulk, you want you don't want too much. So the pulk, what I could see is the pulk is is your sort of small like sledge. Sledge, exactly. What is it made of? It looked brilliant in the pictures. Yeah, so it's a the metallic sledge is like uh, sliding on the ground, and then you have you have a, a material to make it kind of waterproof on the upper side. And then you can put inside everything you want. So it's one meter and 50 centimeters long. And um, you can put everything inside. So I had, you know, the tent, the um, sleeping bag, food, uh, clothing, and all the stuff I was needing. Um, so you can make it lighter, I think. But I was afraid of the cold and all that stuff. So I took a little bit, um, well, not too much, but a good amount of clothing. <laughs> How much, how much did it weigh, do you think, your sledge that you're pulling? So I had, I think, 40 kilos, including the, the weight of the pulk, uh, which is not too big, but when you have, like, a big heel, it's too much. <laughs> and when you're skiing downhill, does it not, like, catch you up and run you over? All the time, yeah, it does. <laughs> so I was, I was keeping, you know, the skins and other skis for the going down just to make it slower. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. It looked brilliant. So how many days were you out? Mm, I thought it would take me four days, but I finally ma made it in three days. Um, because we have a curfew and in terms of logistics, I had to yeah. make it faster. Did you see anybody else when you were out? Uh, yes, yeah, sometimes I, I met some people and, and everybody's all the time very surprised to see me on my own, you know, like that's not normal to see a woman on, on her own. And I had one day of bad weather in the middle, meaning it was snowing all day long, so I was totally wet. And then during the evening, I got probably 20, 20 to 30 centimeters of snow on the tent. So that was, that was great, nice wow. ambience. And then minus 15 degrees Celsius at night, so very cool ambience. And then all the forests were covered by snow. Beautiful. Yeah, I had, you know, tracks of wolves and just, nobody else so that was super nice beautiful yeah and so talking about solo missions that brings us nicely onto um the big chunk of rock called el capitan in yosemite national park in california in america and i know you um you did a, an impressive thing there where you were on the wall for many days tell us about the name of the climb you did and how long you took and, and why did you think of doing that? Climbing alone on one of the biggest walls in the world. What's that all about? <laughs> well, so that's a long story. Um, so the route I've, I've done on El Capitan is named the Triple Direct. So it's a combination of three different routes. Uh, the first one is a uh, Salate wall, which is one of the most famous. Yeah. The second part is uh, more about aid climbing. It's a part of uh, the Muir wall. And then the, the third, uh, third of the route is, uh, is joining the nose, which is the most famous route on the wall. So it's a combination of these three routes. And um, yeah, I've, I've had been climbing many times in Yosemite before, but 
um, that was for many years as party of two. Um, yeah, the story is fun because at some point I was I was going through a difficult part in my life, you know, personal life, and a friend of mine he was trying to support me and and he felt bad because I was sad and he didn't know what to say. And at some point he said to me, you know, it's like being at the bottom of El Capitan and and you will go to the top. Just the thing is that today you're soloing it, and in my head it made like a click, you know, like soloing El Capitan seriously. <laughs> So he was saying that just to make a, you know, um, uh, some or something. Yeah. Some yeah. comparison. Comparison. Thank you. But finally, it turned into an idea, you know, a plan in my head. But I was not, as usually, I was not um, daring myself to do it, of course. And I thought I was crazy because before that, I've never thought about soloing anything in my life. But at that point, I said to myself, hmm. El Capitan looks too big, but why not soloing something? Um, and the thing is that I don't, I don't like risks at all, even if it <laughs> can seem weird with the life I have. Uh, so I, I just want to do rope soloing. You know, there is nothing about free soloing in my head. But just to be clear, because some people listening might not know the difference, but like when Alex Honnold climbs on El Capitan, he, he practices the climb a lot. But then when he does it in the film, Free Solo, he has no ropes. So as climbers, we call that free soloing, don't we? But when you do it, in a kind of strange way, you end up doing El Capitan like three times because every time you do a section, you climb up it, you then yeah. have to abseil down to take your equipment out, mm -hmm. and then you jumar back up. Yeah. So you're kind of doing El Capitan three times. Yeah, that, that's it. And then the thing is that I, I carry big bags, you know, big loads of... Uh, of water, food, equipment. I heard there was a lot of beer in there, in the whole bag. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so is it true that you drank IPA every night? Every night, yeah. That's the uh, reward of yeah. the job of the day. <laughs> but do you, I, you know, when you're in the supermarket looking at the beer, are you thinking, right, well, I think it's going to take me, I don't know, 10 days, but... You know, yeah. I take 30 IPAs or I don't know, how does it work? <laughs> or is it when the IPA runs out, you know, that is serious. You've really got to get a move on. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I need So if I want to be successful, I need to top out with one IPA left. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So you've got a plan at least based on the IPA. Yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, you, you must have a, when you set off on that, I mean, well, first of all, I was just thinking how big your, your how heavy was your bag for that? It's got to be huge, hasn't it? With porter ledge and... Yeah, so um, the heaviest is not the IPA, it's the water. <laughs> I drink more well, water than IPA. What time so, of year was it? What, what time of year did you climb that route? Um, October, mid-October. And, and El Capitan is south-facing, so right. um, I had very long days on the south wall, so you get Thursday all the time. And I take usually four liters a day, four yeah. liters of water a day, including, you know, the tea in the morning, the food at night. So it's not, it's not a lot. I'm, I'm thirsty all the time and I'm dehydrated pretty much. And it's hard work, isn't it? Because you're the climbing for people who, you know, who haven't maybe done that sort of thing. The effort of pulling the bags, huge bags. And I mean, it's very, very physical work. And then the climbing itself is physical. So it's just, I can't imagine how many calories you're using. 
yeah it's exhausting i'm losing weight a lot which which i get back very soon but it's it's exhausting because i'm so the bags I, i'm holding 120 kilo, kilos at the beginning so that's about 12 days of uh, water food and equipment and so I, I can't hold them at one time so i'm doing you know um, a three to one system to make it lighter uh, which means that uh, I'm holding three times the length of the of the section. So if I want to have it three times later, I'm holding three times the length. So it's basically as if I had climbed El Capitan two or three times and hold yeah. three times El Capitan as well. So finally, I've mm -hmm. hold my bags 3,000 meters high. <laughs> you obviously made this decision to do it. In, in, instead of going for, um, you know, relationship counseling or, or whatever, suddenly you're on El Capitan soloing. Um, but there was one point, wasn't there, where you couldn't find the ledge that you were looking for to sleep on or something, and you were just stuck in the middle of the wall at night. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about that. What did that feel like? Well, um, so the, the main feeling I had during the, the ascent is uh, probably being desperate, which is, which is weird, but it's so much effort that uh, when I'm not doing something, I'm desperate because it's too much. So um, one day I, I was quite fast and I decided to make um, one more pitches, one more, more pitch to reach a ledge, which was very flat. So I, I wouldn't have had to, to, to put my portal ledge on and I would have saved time and effort. So I decided because that day was very efficient to make an extra pitch and, and finally didn't work because the night came and I couldn't find the, uh, the move to make, uh, to make it work. And I tried and tried and tried, but the day had been long and I was kind of stuck in the middle of nowhere with the dark coming and I had to, to turn back, which is, which is you know, complicated when, when you're on a wall. And so that took me hours for nothing, just to come back to, to the previous anchor, which was um, hanging in the middle of nowhere. And I came back to here and that was desperation, you know, like. So you're like, you're like uh, I don't know, 500 meters off the ground now or something. Yeah, kind of 400 meters probably. Yeah. So yeah, four, 500, that's true. And, and that, it's supposed to be two patterns that I have to use to make a pendulum, you know, how do you say, um, swings. Does that, does that make sense to you? Yeah, to, to hang your ledge off, do you mean? Or oh, it... no, I mean, in the pitch, I have to use a pattern and then swing to oh, another. Oh, yeah, pattern. so uh, a, a piton hammered into the rock and then swing, pendulum, like a pendulum on a clock to try and reach a place, yeah. Exactly, and, and, and what I had is that one piton was missing and I was looking for it without finding it. And I probably could have placed one, but I couldn't find any place to place my Python and I couldn't do the pendulum. So I was, I was swinging in the middle of El Capitan for hours in the dark, not finding any way of doing it. And, and at that point I say, I think, I thought that uh, if there is no Python, I will, I will bail, you know? But I was tired, you know, it was at night, it was dark. And so that was a, that was a hard time. And probably you've written on my, my blog that uh, what I've done. <laughs> so the story is longer, but what I've done at the end is to call my mom and say, yeah. and, and cry and, and, and say, I will not make it. And, 
and she knows me so that's a very good relationship we have yeah yeah instead of being worried and say oh are you gonna die she's just like reassuring me and saying okay take your time um do you have your bluetooth you know earrings uh, ear system yeah okay so put it on and then put your pour the ledge on and then take some some drink and then eat and and she would just help me with that's amazing. So she has she done this sort of thing herself, so she could. Oh, not at all. No, 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 no. She just knows me perfectly, you know. Right. And she knows everything. She's the kind of mom I can I can talk to about what I do. Some people they would they would not say what they do until it's done, and I'm the opposite. I'm talking with her about my plans, my fears, my my logistics, everything. So she had you know like a copy of the guidebook, and she would tick every night <laughs> the anchor I've reached awesome. so, <laughs> and my parents um, um, we had uh, different time zones and my parents they would share the night so my dad would stay awake uh, during the evening so I can he can send me you know weather forecasts and stuff like that and my mom would be awake in the morning to have a call when it's the night for me when I get you know tired and want to talk about my feelings <laughs> and they would be you know my 24-hour assistance kind of <laughs> that's brilliant no I, I, that's so cool um yeah. so what actually happened that night you see so you're calling your mom and obviously you must be devastated because there's no IPA at this point. <laughs> I had an IPA. Oh, you she had an IPA. Take your IPA. <laughs> yeah. And so did you Did you eventually put your portal ledge up and sleep there or just hang yeah. all night? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've put my portal ledge on, which is the good thing about portal ledge. It's, it takes you a while to, to set it on, but once it's on, it's, it's a great flat spot, you know, so... It took yeah. me a while to make it work, but then once on it with my IPA, and after one hour talking with my mom, it's everything gets clearer, you know? And, and, and then one night is enough to just get motivation back. And then on the next day, I was like a, a warrior, you know, I'm gonna make it. So it worked, of course it worked <laughs> because you know, the end of the story, I've, I've been to the top of this stone, so. <laughs> what did it feel like when you, when you finally made it to the top of El Capitan? Honestly, there is a little bit of everything from the best to the worst because uh, you don't have you don't have pom pom girls waiting for you up there, so it's quite lonely to 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 reach the top of El Cap, um, and that's quite sad because you want to share your adventure and there is nobody. So, <laughs> but that's the thing with soloing, yeah. and and then probably the yeah the the first biggest emotion was. Um, pride kind of pride you know like after being um not confident for so many days you made it so yeah i've been very proud of myself then quite lonely and then i was exhausted super tired and like a bottle of coke that you would shake for a very long time and then you open it so i had like really strong emotions about everything yeah. i took probably two weeks to uh, make them calm down and and think about it more uh, with more distance you know yeah but i'm wonderful stuff i mean great achievement and i would imagine that that's a really powerful story or, or that journey that you can share with you know your clients who are maybe sometimes lacking confidence a bit worried beneath the mountain or also the women that you're mentoring on the group yeah. as well so you, you you can really kind of empathize with them yeah, that, that's what I say to everybody. I, I know what you go through. I, I've been through 
almost the same or different, but quite the same. And I know the only thing we have to do is to take it one step at a time. So every time I was looking at the top of the mountain, I, I would be desperate for sure, because it's too big. You know, it's one kilometer yeah. tall and I do probably 100 meters a day. So even if you walk 15 hours a day, nothing happens. You're just at the, almost the same point than the day before. So if you want to if you want to be efficient, you just do one move. That's the only thing you have to do. Yeah. So that's really weird. But that's what works for yeah. everybody. So chunking, taking a chunk at a time sort of thing. So obviously you've got a massive love um, for climbing and mountains, um, but I know that you, you know, and, and skiing, but, but also I see in some of your posts that you, you like to spend time at sea. Um, and there's that beautiful clip, I think on your Instagram where you're swimming with a turtle <laughs> and it looks, wow, it's, 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 it's really nice. But I was thinking that, you know, when you're at sea on a boat, in big storms or something like that, you're, you're quite contained, aren't you? You know, you can't go very far. How do you find that as somebody who is often moving around a lot? Are you comfortable on a boat? You find it okay? Or do you sometimes feel a little bit uh, constricted in a small space on a boat? Yeah, I see what you mean. So I've been sailing mostly on quite big boats, so I don't feel constricting, constricted at all. Okay. And, and you have the ocean, so finally it's it's very the horizon is big. So yeah, I feel I feel really good on a boat because it's about dealing with elements. It's the same than the mountains to me. So um, yeah, it, it's it's quite new. I haven't been sailing in my my entire life, but no, I'm more into it, and I I, I wanna I wanna do more and more of that. And are you doing on the boat? It's, I couldn't work out. Is it? Are you part of an event like? Is, was one of those things like a race or are you just on a big adventure? What, what sort of trips have you done on a boat? Um, well, the thing is that I, I, I've taken part of an event in the mountains, uh, which is organized by um, Eric Loiseau, who is, uh, he was a sailor and a mountaineer, and he's been organizing it for 30 years. And so he's, he's joining 20 mountaineers to 20 sailors and we are making teams. So one sailor, one mountaineer together. And we have four days of racing, you know, skis and, and orienteering and different kind of stuff. And then that's how I met 20 great sailors. And then I, I went to sail with them and I discovered all their world. And it was like uh, obvious that I had something to live through that. And that's how I went to sailing. Um, so yeah, then I've been sailing on their boats. So I'm very lucky because they're all great offshore offshore racers on great boats. So that's mostly what I've done. And now I'm trying to learn more by myself to be more independent and being able to to sail without them. <laughs> lots of lots of uh, challenges. Have you have you got any dreams on the horizon when life gets back to normal and we can travel a bit more? As or or. You yeah i sure do <laughs> yeah, i'm sure you've got a long list of things you don't have to tell us all of them but um any tips for people out there who are in roles as leaders that's your work being a guide a leader in the mountains and uh also overcoming adversity and i guess at the moment with you know covid and there's a lot of stress and you've already talked about breaking the mountain down into little pieces 
is there anything else any tips that you share with people or yeah probably there is one sentence that uh drives me and that i sometimes share with the teams i'm coaching uh, so in French, it is, uh, il n'y a de limite que votre audace et votre imagination. And I'm going to try to translate that. The only limits you have are your dare and your imagination. So that's uh, mostly to say that if you want something, just have go to it, toward it. And it doesn't say you're going to reach it, but everything you're going to do for, for it is what makes you your life at the end. So wherever you arrive, the most important is the energy you've put in it. So excellent. And, and there is no limit yeah. about that. You can dream of anything you want. And that's a really positive message, isn't it, for people at the moment um, mm -hmm. because of everything that's been going on. Really, really brilliant to chat. I was, I was trying to think of um, if you were stuck in a storm for a long mm -hmm. time for let's say 10 days or something. I mean, would you, what would, would you prefer to be in a tent, in a snow cave or a portal ledge or something? What, what would be your preference? Whoa, <laughs> that's not an easy question. Um, mm -hmm. Portal ledge, probably not, because if there is a storm, there is too, too much metallic things around the portal ledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would probably choose the tent because you can still hear the wind and you probably know I love elements. I love being yeah. in, the, in the wild. So yeah, the tent would be my choice because you, you are kind of protected from the elements, but you still hear them. Yeah. Um, okay. That's um, long. <laughs> yeah. What, what would be your favorite meal if you were stuck in a storm like that? Would be the thing you would most want, do you think? I don't know. Probably it would be about chocolate or cheese or something, you know, like comfort food. <laughs> Yeah, some good uh, Beaufort or something with the IPA. <laughs> and if you could take one luxury item with you, what would that um, be? I think an external battery for my iPhone, because <laughs> I'm a very connected people. So even if I'm soloing, I'm connected to people. I love to share the things. I love to, you know, send pictures and receive some news from my friends, my family, and and, and see what happens in the world. So I would love to be connected at any time. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for sharing on, on your Instagram account, all those amazing images and, and stuff. I mean, yeah, that, that Travis of the Vercor um, made me very, not just envious, but I was like, wow, that just looks so cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't really know the Vercor, just a little bit, but yeah, an amazing area. Well, it's yeah. been great to chat, Julia. Thanks so much for your time. Mm -hmm. Good luck. Thank you, Andy. Keep up the brilliant work. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Andy Cave, and you've been listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast. To keep up to date and to hear more interviews like this, don't forget to subscribe. And I look forward to bringing you more stories and interviews very soon.